Hello, this is Scott Norton, and you're listening to Level Playing Field. Everybody, welcome back to Level Playing Field podcast on the Outsports Radio Network. This is my podcast, and my name is Randy Boos, where I speak with LGBTQ sports personalities and athletes. Sorry for no new episode last week. Last week I was in LA actually uh, recording upcoming episodes for this podcast and another podcast I do, so I didn't have time to actually edit and put one together. One of the people I spoke with last week, though, was my guest for today. Scott Norton. Scott is a former Professional Bowlers Association bowler. He retired a few years back, and we go through his career um, coming out. He basically was out to the tour, but came out in a big way a few years ago when um, he was featured in the first Gay Kiss on ESPN. Uh, The PBA had a tournament. He won. He kissed his husband, and the rest is history. I have links to the articles in um, from Outsports that they did about the first gay kiss and in the show notes. I have also have links to follow Scott on Twitter. And he, part of the conversation, we talk about a new escape room that he is opening up in Orange County, California. And we talk about that. And today, which is the Tuesday that this episode is being released, they're actually going to start booking people. If you want to check out an escape room in Orange County, look it up. The link is in the show notes and you will have an awesome time. Uh, Without further ado though, I just want to get with this episode and here is Scott Morton. Let's begin. Welcome Scott to my podcast. Oh, thank you so much. So we are going to be talking about bowling for the next hour. <laughs> um, I'm sure for, for most people, bowling is, it's a different uh, thoughts and feelings than I'm sure you have growing up with a mom who is a Hall of Fame bowler and you yourself being a competitive bowler. Yeah, it's definitely a little bit different than most. Uh, While well, most kids were, uh, well, I mean, going into teens, most kids were going to school dances and proms. I was uh, in the bowling center practicing. I worked in an ice rink, and the kids that are figure skating daily or playing hockey daily, they're called rink rats. Mm-hmm. What are bowling alley kids called? Any name? Uh, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your earliest memory with bowling then oh man uh i i started bowling when i was about four or five years old and my mom uh actually would not let me use the bumpers she taught me how to do a four-step approach and i had to do a four-step approach if i was going to bowl and then after that she just kind of left me to do my thing so i uh just you know, bold leagues every Saturday morning and bold high school leagues and all of that. But my earliest memory, oh, it's hard to pick one just because I always remember being in a bowling center. It was probably being in a bowling center watching her bowl because she was still competitive when I was a kid. So uh, I, I think that's probably my earliest memory was watching her bowl to some tournament. <laughs> and funny enough, uh, 
at the end of the tournament, all the girls would uh, go, all the, you know, the, the other pros would, they'd all, you know, go in the bar and hang out. And there'd be this little five-year-old, uh, and I was proficient at video games, so I had no problem going to all the women in the bar and asking for a dollar to go play video games. Cause Amazing. I figured, hey, if you're going to keep my mom from me, then, you know, you got to pay the piper. And then a little alcohol probably helped. Oh, sure, here's a dollar. Well, I mean, anything to keep the little kid away. <laughs> <laughs> so playing at four years old without the bumpers... I can barely play now with, without bumpers. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember doing it until... I, I don't have a lot of memory of actually bullying myself until a little bit later. But that's that's the story I'm told. So, you know, I don't know for sure if that's the case. You know, I, I'm joking a lot about bullying, and I'm sorry because it was such a big part of your life. But when you play a game like that where most people, you know, do it for fun, and you're just starting out as you know i don't know preteen or whatever was was it still fun for you or was it more of just a family activity that you had to do um i never actually it's hard to say because i want to say that i never felt like i had to do it no one forced me like my mother never forced me to bowl but a part of me always felt like i kind of had to live up to her uh you know I was always in her shadow and it was always like I was going to be working the family business kind of thing. So uh, it always felt like it was something that I had to do, um, but it, it never came from anyone but myself. When did you realize that you were good at it? Well, I mean, when I was a kid, I, I was generally one of the best bowlers in the league. Um, for a long time. And then I would say it was about until 13 or 14 when people finally started beating me that couldn't beat me before. <laughs> and then I went to my mom and said, hey, mom, <laughs> this isn't okay. I need help. <laughs> and uh, that's when I started getting competitive. Uh, well, I mean, I was obviously I was always competitive. That was something I got from my mother is uh, I have a pretty high competitive drive. Bowling for me, I mean, a happy moment for me is... You know, if I get up to like 140, you know, I think uh -huh. the last time I played with my family, I, I barely reached 100, which is really embarrassing to admit. <laughs> but, um, but the bad, the really sad thing is I still beat everyone in the family. That's how horrible of bowlers <laughs> we are. All right. But I just can't imagine because every, every time you throw the ball down the lane, you're able to judge yourself on success. You know, I mean, obviously strikes the goal, but when right. is, when does it become like a disappointing turn? Well, it's, it's, it has less, I mean, as I got better, not just as a bowler, but, you know, I kind of grew up as an adult. It was less about the, um, the result and more about my performance, so even if I performed well or poorly, if I knew that I physically did all the things that I was supposed to do and the result wasn't what I expected, then, yeah, I was disappointed because I didn't, you know, win or bowl well. But and, and to, you know, make that even narrower, I didn't strike, but I threw the ball well, then that's just, you know, that's how it, that's how it happens sometimes. Do, do, when you when you're going and playing, are you? I mean, I, I'm assuming you're going for a strike every time, but 
are you also setting up for the spare? I mean, ha- that's the thing. I don't understand the mindset of a professional bowler, what you're going to do. I mean, I guess if you don't get a strike, you want to make sure that you're set up to to knock right. them all down the next time. Well, generally, the better the ball you throw, uh, the less pins. If you do leave something, the less pins that you'll have to pick up. Mm-hmm. So you always want to you know, be focused. It's just like every other sport, really. You're always focused on being in the moment and, and dealing with what's in front of you right now. You know, if you're playing tennis, you're not worried about what happened the previous point. You're worried about this serve, this shot, you know, always doing that early preparation. It's kind of the, it's the same mindset where every shot has its own, uh, has to have its own focus. So as you're growing as a player or as a bowler, obviously being an LGBT sports podcast for you when does sexuality become a thing where you start to realize that you're not like the other boys that you have as friends or the other kids around you well i'm sure you've heard the story you know a hundred times on the podcast but uh i it it, you know i always knew i was different and then people started talking about girls and that's not who i was looking at still (laughs) (laughs) and i always thought it would go away and it never did And even in juniors, though, I mean, I was never out, quote unquote, in juniors, but I guess everybody knew before I did. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm not horribly effeminate, but you know, when I open my mouth, the purse falls out. So, (laughs) um, (laughs) can't do much about that. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I, yeah, everybody kind of knew. But I thought it was important to say something, which I did uh, 2013, I think, is when, you know, I kind of made a public statement about it. And I just wanted to, you know, we, we go to a lot of very small towns as bowlers, and it's nice to, you know, give somebody there that might be struggling with their sexuality someone to look up to or mm-hmm. to look towards to see that, you know, it can get better and you can succeed at what you're doing because it's one thing it would be great if it was a uh baseball player basketball player whatever that came out and you were able to see them on national tv just doing amazing but bowling's kind of different in that it's a lot more intimate there's a lot more fan interaction uh when you go to these sites like you're literally i mean for lack of a better term you're courtside all the time i thought that was um one thing I could do to help the generation after me was, you know, to have that visibility in spaces that weren't necessarily as safe because we mm-hmm. went to Shawnee, Oklahoma and um, uh, uh, Columbus, Ohio. And I'm trying to think of some of the smaller towns we went to and then up and down some of the smaller towns in California as well that, you know, aren't like L.A., New York, San Francisco, you know, not automatically going to be open and accepting were, who were your heroes in bowling world growing up? Did it mainly stay with the women's side because of your mom? or did Yeah, you have it was heroes? mostly my mom. I, I didn't really watch the guys as much, I, mostly because I was watching the women. It was just weird. <laughs> as I grew up, I realized that what I thought was normal was not normal. Because I grew up, you know, watching all these ladies bowl, and then I would see them on TV. And I thought that was normal just to be around these people that are always on TV. (laughs) So, I mean, the term hero is, I don't know, hard for me 
just because of that, because my perspective is a bit different, because I knew all of these people who other people idolized. I knew them as people. Yeah. They were all like my surrogate mothers. So that was actually something I used going forward. My own career was to make sure that I never lost sight of the fact that I was a person first and always, you know, was willing to talk to talk to whoever wanted to talk to me, take pictures, all of that stuff, and never act like I was too good for it. Was bowling the only sport you ever did growing up, or were you involved in others? No, actually, I did almost every sport, except for football. I played a season of basketball. I played soccer for like four or five years. I mean, I was I was tall and had monkey arms, so I was like a perfect fit for goalie. <laughs> <laughs> um, I golfed. Not very much. I played tennis pretty competitively. I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, I played baseball for like three or four years, little league. What would what was it that made you stick with bowling then? Just the family connection, or partially that? Were... And I'm pretty. I, I I'm hyper competitive, and every time I would injure myself in another sport, you know, I'd roll my ankle playing baseball or I'd hurt my wrench my back playing tennis or whatever uh, it would knock me out of bowling for a while and I couldn't go bowl a tournament so that uh, was not acceptable at all for me and eventually everything just kind of gave way to bowling the only one I regret is tennis really how come I was actually I was good at tennis and I really enjoyed it but it's hard to compete when you have a Hall of Fame coach for free. <laughs> oh, totally. That's, uh, I mean, you know, it would have just been a lot bigger commitment. Um, and it would have been more uncomfortable, which in hindsight would have been better for me. But, you know, when you're a kid, you want to stay with what's familiar. Yeah. How do you progress in bowling? You so, Did your high school have team, a team? Yeah, actually, we didn't have a team. So there was a junior tour in Southern California um, that was pretty competitive. And uh, over the years, it has created quite a few uh, professional bowlers. My best friend is uh, Melissa Parkin, and she was on that same tour. And that's how we met, uh, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> um, and it, you know, it went from there. And then... Um, there was a, te- a junior team USA had just started up in the late nineties. So that was the next step as a junior bowler was to make junior team USA, which I did. And then the year after that, I became the youngest person to win the adult team USA amateur championship. I was 18 at the time. So when were you, how old were you as a junior then? Uh, you could be a junior up until 21 back then. Uh, I, but you could also, once you turned 18, you could decide to quote unquote turn adult. So if you're a junior bowler, you could only, uh, compete for, um, scholarship money. You couldn't compete at the time. You couldn't compete in any tournament that like awarded prize money or you lost your junior status. So, um, if we wanted to move forward past, you know, the junior bowling, we had to make that decision ourselves. And she and I both made that decision, uh, Missy and I both made that decision when I was 18, when and she was 18, because well, we were ready to take the next step and start competing for money. What was the junior tour like? Is it Was it basically just in Southern California then, or did you travel outside of the region? 
There were a few, uh, mostly Southern California, but there were a few big tournaments. There was always a tournament right after Christmas in Vegas that was like uh, six or seven thousand dollars in scholarship for first place. And there was a tournament. There was this great uh, thing we had where the this whole contingent of Hawaiian juniors would come bowl this big tournament we had in San Diego. And then every summer, the Hawaiians had a tournament, so a big contingent of Southern California junior bowlers went to Hawaii. So, oh wow, that's uh, that was yeah, that was really cool. We got to, you know, make a lot of friends. Like Hawaii is still like my second home, and I have you know tons of ohana there. Every time I go, I get all the all the anti food, <laughs> fresh made poke and chicken katsu and Kalua pork, and oh man. Now I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Because is there a is there a locker room type feel in bowling, or is it more you're arriving and you're just on your own? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there is. It's so bowling's an individual sport, so it it definitely always feels very um lonely out there, and um. The good part, the good thing, not for her so much, was that at the time there was no women's professional tour. So when I was first out there, Missy was actually competing against the men out on tour. And uh, she and I roomed together, you know, for most of the first couple years of tour. Oh, really? Yeah. Were you already out at this time? uh, I don't think so. But I mean, everybody on tour knew. I was never really in the closet, like to my fellow bowlers. It was just more for... uh, the fans that I just didn't really say anything. What about your family then? I came out to them when I was 18. So for a few years ago. <laughs> so yeah, it is just confused, not confusing, but it's sort of surprising then that as a junior, what 17, 16, 17, 18, you're rooming with a, a female bowler. Oh, at the time when I was a junior, we weren't rooming together. It was uh, it was after when I went out on oh, the pro tour. Sorry, the not the junior tour. tour. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, my misunderstanding. Okay. No, that was I didn't clarify that. Yeah, Missy actually bowled on the men's professional tour against the guys with me. Like she would travel around with me, doing that. Why would why did they split it up then? Was she able? Because I imagine she's able to compete with at, the men. Uh, at the time, there was no women's tour, and she was able to compete with the men, but wasn't able to like make a living doing it. So she was basically just out there treading water. And you know, at some point, you got to pay the bills. So especially once the women's tour started, she stopped bullying men's events. What was it like then when you joined the men's tour? You're still in the closet professionally. Yeah. Yes and no. Like again, like everybody out there knew. Everybody out on the men's tour knew. It was just the fans that did not know. And it was, it, it, it's hard to say just because they did their, I think they did their best to, you know, be supportive or, you know, inclusive. I'm not sure what word you'd like to use, but, you know, at the same time, it's an individual sport and there is a locker room, like where we store our bowling balls in between squads and where we like, you know, people change and whatever. And I never had any issue per se. But, you know, you get a locker room full of alpha males together and, you know, you hear the typical locker room chatter. Yeah, but I mean, with at that point, though, with them accepting you, I mean, I'm sure 
was there like the homo- homophobic talk or language? Oh, yeah, or... 100%. Oh, really? Even with you around? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. To my face. And at first, I just kind of like, like the first year or so, uh, since I didn't really know anybody that well, I kind of just, ha, 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 funny. And then, you know, after <laughs> after a couple of years of it, I had, you know, kind of had enough and had to take some people to task about their language. Are, I mean, are they saying it like to you about you or just, well, like, I, I mean, mean I, and not that it really matters. For instance, for instance, they would you know, be like, Hey princess, how you doing? When they would be, when they would be talking to me. Really? Which, yeah. Which I thought that, you know, initially was, and it was a little naive of me. I thought it was, you know, them just trying to, you know, be cute and fit in with my vernacular when in fact, you know, it was just, you know, typical locker room stuff. And I don't think there was any ill will or any malice or anything like that attached to it. But they also, I don't really think they tried to understand how that would be for someone else. Yeah. I mean, there's that discussion that some people have on the internet about, homophobic speech in locker rooms specifically doesn't necessarily correlate to homophobics outside of the sport. Right. And it's just because of the culture. 100% agree. I would say there were a handful of people that were genuinely homophobic when I was out there. Most people were either super supportive or didn't care. Now that being said, Um, there was always, you know, there was always rumors going around about, I slept with this person or that person out on tour. And mind you, the entire time I was out on tour, I was with, uh, at the beginning, he was my boyfriend. And then after he was my husband. So the whole time, you know, they're basically accusing me of, (laughs) of having an affair with this bowler or that bowler, or I was rooming with somebody. So you know, obviously we slept together, fooled around or whatever you want to say, because, you know, heaven forbid we just, you know, be roommates. <laughs> yeah. So wait, they're accusing then other bowlers of being gay who might not necessarily be gay? <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't really know what their intent was with the other bowler. If they're just like just making fun of them for rooming with a gay guy or what the deal was. Uh, it wasn't really clear, but it was pretty clear that i couldn't room with somebody without sleeping with them <laughs> which i'm not well, of exactly course because that's sure what that always happens i know i i don't really know where that came from uh, i wouldn't i didn't do anything to you know garner that kind of reputation like i didn't engage in those behaviors <laughs> <laughs> i was already like 29 when i went out there and I just did not, that was not my thing. And it was so funny that half the time, the people that were saying things like that were the people that themselves were cheating on their spouse while they were out there. Oh yeah. It's the hypocritical behavior. Oh, yeah. Even like well, now it's like, you can be someone who just rails against homosexuality, but then you're going to support someone who like the president who. Oh, yeah can sleep around, can bragging about grabbing people, but you know, I know it, it's, All the it's time. like they think that it's the last, I guess it's the last thing they're holding on to that they can control Yeah. because adultery and divorce went out the window years ago. So let's, let's talk crap about the gay people. Right. 
anyways. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Um, but that's kind of how it was. And at the end, like, I was just rooming by myself because I didn't want to deal with it. And because I'm kind of a, an introvert anyway. So after, you know, having to do you know, all these games of bowling, and then I would have to do a pro-am, and I'd have to, like, you know, be happy, smiley, meet new people every five seconds. Um, It ended up working out for me, because all I wanted to do was just go sit in a room by myself and (laughs) fall asleep. (laughs) Yeah. Huddled in the corner, recovering from all the interactions you had to have. I understand Uh that. Totally understand. What was a typical bowling weekend like when you would compete? So a lot of the time it was actually the tour kind of consisted of like two or three or four weeks in a row and then like four weeks off and then four weeks on, four weeks off kind of thing. Normally it would be like Monday or Tuesday we'd get there. We'd have our practice session on Wednesday. Wednesday night would be a pro-am. So that was when I would meet all the people. Thursday would be qualifying day. Uh, most of the time Friday would be like, there'd be a cut after Thursday. So you might, you know, travel this whole time and don't, you don't make it out of Thursday. And then Friday would be a finals, uh, day. And then the top five from Friday would make the TV show on Sunday. And then Saturday was another pro-am. So if you miss the cut on Thursday, then you still had to stay until Saturday and, you know, be happy, smiley with everybody else, even though you just lost money that week. <laughs> because you're still having to pay for your entry fee, your hotel, your travel, like all of that. None of that's covered. Like you have to come out of your pocket for all of that. You Wait, you're paying for all of that? And uh-huh. so they keep they keep you there for like five days. Uh-huh. You're and, paying for the hotel room that night. Uh-huh. You're paying for an entry fee. Mm-hmm. And then, so the only way you make money is you have to make the cut and you have to, you know, place in the, yeah, exactly. You have to bowl well. (laughs) So it's, it's it's kind of a double, like it's, it's, it's double bad because not only do you not make any money if you don't make the cut, but you lose money. And then back then, because I was born in the seventies and growing up, the PBA was always on TV. Yeah, I guarantee they were doing the same thing, but the the prize money was way uh, comparatively the prize money was way better uh, compared to the uh, value of the dollar at the time. Mm-hmm. It said that, uh, and I, I I can't verify how true this is, but I've seen, seen it a couple times that bowlers were actually the highest paid athletes in the world back in the seventies. Well, I mean, like guys like Pete Weber were famous, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Yeah. That's, I mean, not to talk badly against an organization, but the PBA really seems to be making out with that whole deal. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> I mean, they're getting TV money, they're getting player money, they're getting sponsorship oh, yeah, money. Was, oh, yeah, that was the other thing. Uh, up until recently, the PBA actually had to pay for its TV slots. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the PBA, and, it, and we, they only had like probably a dozen employees at most. Uh, in the PBA, so yeah, they were uh, they were struggling along with us. Although their their paycheck was guaranteed, ours wasn't. So yeah, that's crazy. It it really is. It sort of sucks for an athlete who, because I know tennis players are have have to pay their own stuff, and a lot of these individual sports, beach volleyball, I know also does. You don't really think about it when you're watching it on TV. 
Oh, no, you see somebody on TV and you think they're living, you know, on a beach house in Malibu. <laughs> oh, yeah, because, you know, we all see, you know, like I mentioned, Pete Weber or Tiger Woods or, you know, whatever the sport is, because mm-hmm. those guys are making and girls are making millions of dollars in sponsorship, millions of dollars in prize money. But the guys who are actually filling up the TV slots playing are right. the ones that actually don't aren't making the money. Right. Well, I will say that uh, the endorsement deals <laughs> are not as lucrative as you would think com- uh, compared to other sports. It yeah. was a, it was a struggle, uh, and, the, and usually they're in sports sponsors too, right? So it's yeah. I would say that um, purely based off prize money, the only people that would actually make a living out on tour were the top fifteen, and then. When you start including endorsements and everything, you could probably take that down to about 25 or 30. So 30 people are making what would be considered an acceptable yearly income, which is like, what, fifty or $60,000? Wow. Yeah. It's a rough and, life. And let's, and let's, I mean, and I don't know if this is right to say for you, but I could delete it, like I said. And you're not complaining because you were a loser on the tour and all that stuff. You actually won and you had quite a bit of success. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you are, you know, bitter because, and not that you're bitter. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not bitter at all. It was a, it was a, it was a choice for me to uh, step back and take care of myself because I wasn't happy. And my happiness had nothing to do with anything that was going on. Uh, None of the other bowlers, none of the PBA. It was just me. Yeah. It was not the life that I that I that was going to make me happy. And so, so then let's talk about you coming out to the world basically cuz like you talked about you've already been out to your family, your friends, your the players. But when you go public in the media, were you surprised by the reaction you got? Actually, yeah, I was uh I was surprised at a couple things. I was surprised that so you like fans knew only because i was like i you know i made no i made no effort to like you know hide what hide myself or what i was doing i kind of i had to ask the the announcers to call craig my husband which was fine mm-hmm. but i um yeah it, it it surprised me that it was as big a deal as it was, but only because I thought that no one would care about our sport because so few people do. Yeah. And then for it to blow up as much as it did. Exactly. Like that shocked the heck out of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and the other reason that it shocked me so much is that it had happened so long ago. Like we taped that show in November. It was a tape delayed show. So they could have like ESPN could have cut that out. Like it wasn't live live. Um, and then it aired in late December. I think, I think it was like the Saturday or Sunday after Christmas. And it took a few days for it to like, it came and went and, you know, I had a little viewing party at my house to, you know, watch and everything with some friends, which was fun. But, uh, yeah, it uh, <laughs> it blew up about three or four days later, and I just didn't even see it coming. 
how how do you handle it? Because I mean, it, it's obviously before social media too. So, or social media was going on, but it wasn't as big and intrusive as it is now. Right. Yeah, but, I. It was. I. I don't know. I, I mean, mean I was, guess as an introvert, how do you handle it? Right. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of time to myself after having to deal with all of these people. <laughs> that was basically how I handled it because, uh, you know, not a whole lot changed afterwards. Like I had a lot more gay fans, which was fun. Like it was really nice seeing the the outpouring of support and the reach that it got in the gay community. I was having. Like, people email me or message me on Facebook from Brazil, from Hong Kong and Singapore, um, all over Europe, you know, just reaching out to, you know, send their support to me, which that was, the I think, the neatest part. Were you able to respond to some of them, at least? Or... Oh, yeah. I responded to anyone that sent me a message I responded to. Yeah, it's funny because I spoke to Andy Brennan a few months back. He's an Australian soccer player that came out. I want to say back in May or June. Mm-hmm. And uh, he talked about his friends giving him a hard time because when he came out, his Twitter followers blew up and like 90% of it were gay men. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that I, I don't know that that was the case for me. Uh, again, bowling. So, you know, <laughs> slightly different. But, and it was kind of before, you know, followers and follower accounts were a thing on social media. It was kind of starting to get there, but it wasn't quite there yet. I mean, I've only got 6,000 Twitter followers, so (laughs) (laughs) thankfully not a bunch. I know, right? (laughs) Well, I still can't believe that I still have 6,000 followers, but I guess it's more work to unfollow than it is to just (laughs) forget that you did it in the first place. So then did Craig have any... Was he surprised when it came out as well? Because it also affected him. Yeah, he was a little he was a little surprised. Uh, and it's so funny. He's from a really small town in Nevada outside of Reno. And his family was like parading their paper all over like to all the people. <laughs> which is funny because the town is pretty conservative. But they, uh, they were all excited that a local guy had made it. <laughs> and and he... Uh, he came with me. I got invited to bowl a tournament in Japan uh, shortly after that had all become public. And the Japanese, uh, well, I love Japan. The Japanese are amazing. They have these signature cards. They're like maybe like six to nine inches long by six to nine inches long. And it depends, you know, whether they want you to sign just a little portion of it so that they can, uh, you know, get a few signatures on it or if they want only your signature on it. So, you know, a few people came up to me and asked for my signature. And then somebody else walks up, this this little Japanese lady walks up to my, to Craig and says, oh, cool, you signed too? And he's like, no, 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 I'm not bowler. I'm not bowler. And she goes, oh, no, you with him. I know who you are. She signed. <laughs> and so he gave a signature. And I'll tell you what, he was just uh, beaming from ear to ear the rest of that trip. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It was it was funny. It was really, really funny. In this whole thing, you said it was Outsports, right, that mm-hmm. branded the the kiss the first gay kiss on ESPN mm-hmm. and so your fame keeps happening 
Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's funny that it keeps uh I keep seeing it pop up every now and again. It's uh it's nice because they always have to like uh you know they always have to couch it somehow now because it was the first. So now it's you know the first one from the MLB or from the women's soccer or whatever. Yeah. And then they, you know, sometimes they'll refer back to mine, which is, it's, I don't know, it's nice to feel like I made a contribution to society. Even if it was for something as silly as, you know, giving my husband a kiss after I won a tournament. The good news is you and him are still together, so. Yeah. Because it would be really awkward if you guys weren't. (laughs) would. Yeah, we've actually been uh, together for 11 years and married for eight. What do you... So you retire. Mm-hmm. Was it a tough decision to retire? Well, it, 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 I, I want to say no. Yes and no. Because, you know, bowling was such a big part of my life that it was hard to walk away even for one tournament. But how it started was I was invited to bowl a tournament in Costa Rica. And... I was even burnt out bowling that. And that tournament has has always been this amazingly fun event. They throw parties every night and we go do a sightseeing tour one of the days instead of bowling. And I mean, it's just an amazing event. And uh, I was even burnt out bowling that. So I kind of talked to my uh, bowling ball sponsors and I was like, hey guys, I I need to take a break for a few months and just kind of you know, regroup, I've got a little burnout. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, we'll just let us know when you want to come back. And then three months has turned into three years. Because I figured there would be a point when I would, um, you know, have that urge or that, you know, that drive again to go bowl. But not, it hasn't, it hasn't shown up yet. Which I think is an important lesson for a lot of people. Like, Because some people I've seen, you know, they'll talk to me and they'll say, oh, he quit. Oh, he quit. I'm like, no, I didn't quit. (laughs) (laughs) I was still I was still making TV shows the year that I the year that I retired. Like it wasn't an issue of not being able to compete anymore. It was an issue of it wasn't, you know, making me happy. And I think it's important for people to do what makes them happy, not what makes them famous or what makes them you know, rich or whatever. Oh, definitely. When you look back at your, your playing career, are you amazed that, you know, in this podcast alone, you've talked about going playing bowling or bowling in Costa Rica, Hawaii, Japan. Yeah. I, uh, um, it's a sport that is taking you around and giving you a lot of experiences. I'm so thankful for it too. Even though I am burnt out and don't really wish to compete now, I'm so thankful for the experiences that I got to have. And I met and have so many friends from across the globe. Uh, I went to a friend's wedding that from England. She invited me to her wedding that I've known her for like 20 some odd years. And uh, it was in Italy. So I got to take a trip to Italy to go to a wedding. Oh, and nice. I have another really good friend from Malaysia. And she stayed at my, you know, she stayed at my house. And in Malaysia, she's actually like more famous there than Michael Jordan is here. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a way bigger deal there. (laughs) (laughs) 
So, I mean, I'm so thankful for all these experiences that I've gotten to have. And I've been able to travel the world basically for free because and, and make money doing it, which was just amazing. Mm-hmm. Clue, but is your mom still alive? Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Does she look at the sport now and and amazed at what you've been able to do since oh, it yes. was so different for her? Yes, very much. And uh, she was not very supportive of my retirement at first. <laughs> she uh, just kept, you know, like, okay, you know, what about now? How about now? How about now? But then I think after a while, she kind of, well, and after a couple of times of me telling her, like, it's not making me happy, like, she finally got it. And So uh, that that's a cool, it's not normal, it's not a usual story. The gay thing, totally fine. Retiring from bowling early, that's yeah, what's the problem. It is. wasn't at first. Um, my dad had more of a problem with it than my mom, but my mom, which I thought was so ironic that my mom had any issue with it because she was out on the women's tour for 25 years <laughs> and mm-hmm. half of the surrogate moms quote unquote I had like when I was out there just like playing around as a little kid like half of them were lesbians but and, I think it goes back to the the, the parent thing it's I know the, it totally was it's and the she, idea of the dream that they have exactly and and she was terrified of what it was going to mean for me because she saw what it did to them yeah and it's harder on men usually uh-huh and it wasn't easy. Like, I was uh, not selected for Team USA the year after I won the trial uh, because I came out that year when I was 19 and I'd come out to, like, I'd come out to, you know, most of the bowling world. I may not have come out to, like, you know, fans and made a public statement and all that, but everybody in the bowling world knew I was gay. And yeah. I'll never forget the. I'll never forget the phrase, uh, I don't want that representing my country. Was you actually heard that. Selection. No, I didn't hear it. It was someone else in the selection committee that was in the room told me that that's what was said. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And I remember that was, uh, yeah, that was a pretty dark time because it was all like, it was kind of right after I'd come out. And my mom was worried about it affecting my career. And then that happened. So it was kind of like, you know, all of it coming true. It was not easy. Man, that's tough. And obviously it, it helped lead to the, the early retirement, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the sport's given me a lot, but it's uh, it's taken quite a bit from me too. That's too bad. But at least you can look at it and say there were still some, some great moments. Oh, there were definitely some great moments. All of, the, all of my closest friends I have met through that sport so what are you doing now? Um, so I, I'm also an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> I have my own law firm. Uh, yeah, I actually passed the bar, like found out I passed the bar the same week that I won my exemption out in the National Men's Tour. It was a pretty good week. Yeah, I would say. <laughs> and that is an experience that I would wish on nobody, not <laughs> even my worst enemy. That, that bar exam and the studying leading up to it was horrible. Yeah, I can only imagine. I have no interest in doing that. Yeah, it's three days, eight hours a day. And uh, then you don't find out whether or not you passed for four months. That's crazy. Yeah, it's nutso. But I'm actually uh, in the process right now of opening an escape room here in Southern California. Oh, serious? Yeah. Will it be bowling bowling related? 
No, no, but I will have bowling paraphernalia around like the lobby and stuff like that. That is cool. What's it, the room going to be called? Uh, the space itself, the entire business, is called Nerdy by Nature. <laughs> and um, I'm going to have two rooms. One of them is going, the first one that's going to be opening this week, I think, depending on when the building inspector finally decides to sign off on the construction that I had to do. <laughs> oh, jeez. Um, yeah. It, that one's going to be uh, Illuminati themed. Nice. That you're trying to get initiated into the Illuminati. And uh, the second one's actually going to be pirate themed. And we're going to be building out the hull of a ship in one of the rooms. Oh, and wow. You're actually going to be like piloting a pirate ship. It's a that little bit more like fun than. Oh, yeah. I'm super excited about it. And uh, it's nice to be doing something that brings me joy. <laughs> yeah, I, I could imagine. That's really cool that it's going to open. And that's in San Diego? Uh, Orange County. Oh, Orange County. Okay. Yeah. I live about 20 minutes south of Disneyland. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. I know the big cities in Yeah. Down here, <laughs> it's but, between but, uh... LA and San Diego. That's why I use Disneyland as the, as the oh, yeah, uh, landmark, because everyone knows where that is. Everyone knows where Anaheim is. Yeah, exactly. I live like 20 minutes south of there. <laughs> <laughs> now it makes sense. Yes. Also well, a huge Disney freak. Oh, yeah. Same I've here. had an annual pass for like, I can't even tell you how many years. They're so expensive now, though. Oh, I know. I know, but I can't not have it. <laughs> yeah. If I live closer, I would, because we had it for three or four years. And we just, right. we wanted to go to Europe instead, so. Yeah, that's about the same price. <laughs> oh, no. And I don't know if I'll include this, but. We, um, for my family, we were looking to go to Disneyland, stay on property for like a week. And I priced it out and it was like $5,000. Oh my God. Yeah. And then, so I priced out going to London just for the hell of it. And for a 10 day trip to London flights, hotel, it was like 3,800. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. But doesn't, don't get me wrong. I, we still love Disney. Oh, we're yeah. still a Disney family. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have an annual pass if I didn't live here. Like, I didn't have it when I lived in, uh, I actually lived in Salt Lake for four years. I went to the University of Utah. And wow. uh, and then I went to law school in San Francisco. So that was like polar opposite political climates. Yeah, you you couldn't really ask for something different. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's about as different as it got. But I'm thankful for my time. So I actually moved to Salt Lake for uh, for love, quote unquote. <laughs> And uh, I stayed after we broke up just so I could uh, kind of be on my own for a while. And I just wanted to get my undergraduate degree. And it, I'm, I'm thankful for my time there because, you know, being, you know, newly out in Salt Lake was not exactly, you know, a welcoming experience. So it was really important um, for me learning how to, you know, grow a, grow a little bit of thick skin and learn how to learn how to fight for myself a little. And that served me well out on tour. If I hadn't had those experiences, you know, being around those people that were making, you know, remarks that they may or may not have been making mean-spirited, it uh, would have been a very different experience for me. Oh, yeah, I bet. You have had a fun life, though, it seems. <laughs> I've had an eventful one. That's for darn sure. <laughs> I've traveled the world. I've... Uh done this and that i've gotten a law degree yeah it's been a 
it's been an eventful life, and now the next chapter starts. Let me Hopefully ask you I'll a, be able to settle into this one for a while. <laughs> let me ask you a, a question that parents will usually ask you. Any plans for kids? Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I still don't know. It's it's the, the luxury of being gay, I suppose, is that we get to be parents uh parents on purpose. Oh yeah. Um I'm not I'm not sure whether or not we are or not. Um, I, I like my uh, Missy, my best friend, just had a baby. He's about, he's almost two. And um, he, I, I love being around him, but it has made me kind of like, I am much better being the cool auntie than I am. <laughs> <laughs> nice. If only you could go straight to grandkids. I know, then right? That would That'd be, the be best. fine. Like, yeah. okay, that's enough. Here you go, mom and dad. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, pretty much. I look forward to that. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, I will let you go. Let me ask you one final question I ask all my guests. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously for you, it sounds like it was a little different anyways. But going back to when you were 12 or 13, if you could time travel, what's that one thing you could tell yourself? to help you with your sexuality and coming out and, and the whole process? Man, that's so hard. I think the most important thing I'd tell myself is to prioritize loving myself as I am, not as someone else wants me to be. Uh, I, I spent way too much of my uh, childhood and early adulthood concerned with what everybody else thought of me, always trying to mold myself into this, like, perfect person which you know is not only impossible but serves to just drive you up a wall and crazy and throw you into depression when you can't meet those standards Um, so that's I think the most important thing I would tell my 12 year old self is spend time uh, loving loving yourself like just you're you have so many good you're kind child you you know you have so many nice personality traits stop listening to what other people think and love you that's a good one well scott thank you so much for coming on today oh thank you for having me i appreciate it it's always yeah nice it's been to fun take a walk down memory lane every now and again I hope you all enjoyed that episode where I spoke with Scott Norton. Tune in next week when I have Haley Videkis, a former women's basketball player at Pepperdine and Arizona State University. Once again, thank you for listening, and I will see you next week. Have a good one.